People won't remember what you did. They won't remember what you said, but they will remember how you made them feel. That, of course, is from the brilliant Maya Angelou. May she rest forever in peace. When is she going to get canonized and sainted? That's what I want to know. The reason I choose this quote to kick things off is I want to pick up from our last conversation about how to communicate in the interest span. Now, if you're listening to this and you're like, interest span, what? Go back one episode to the episode called The Goldfish Problem. It explains everything. It'll make perfect sense once you hear that. But for those of you who are following along and who already made it through The Goldfish Problem, welcome to Mapping the Journey. I promised you we would get pen to paper after you know 25 laborious minutes just talking about intention. And I intend to deliver on that promise. Now, the reason I started with that quote about how people don't remember what you did or what you said, but rather how you made them feel, I begin that way because this question is what allows you to communicate right into the heart of the interest span. Because here's the thing, people will binge watch or binge listen or read for hours on end because it makes them feel something. It makes them feel something. So while we begin to plan a talk or our remarks or whatever it is, while we begin by getting clear on what the intention is for the talk, and then we work to understand what the motivation and the needs are of the people in the audience, next, we need to look at what emotions these people need to experience in order to retain the information that we're trying to convey, to take action on what needs action taking, right? And while I think most of us know this on a gut level, we usually dismiss the idea of emotions as if they were something to be kind of ashamed of, right? This is a massive mistake. In fact, there's plenty of research from neuroscience that shows that we remember the emotional dimension of an experience better than anything else. Incredible, right? So tapping into the rich emotional lives of an audience, I think, is the only way to make sure they, A, pay attention, B, remember what you said and be able to repeat what you've said, and three, to be able to take action on what you said. All of that is riding on your ability to leverage the power of emotion. So tapping into the rich emotional lives of the audience requires that we understand all of the different emotions we can play with, right? It's like, what's in your palate? What emotional resources can you draw on? And I find that some of us are really, really adept at identifying emotions and others of us are a little rusty. If you're rusty, go back and listen to the episode with Dr. Adam Dorsey called Emotions, The Data Men Miss. It's such a great conversation. It'll totally fold into this and help turbocharge this part of your planning process. These are my favorite emotions that I like to think about playing with during the course of a talk. Ready? Curiosity, anxiety, fear. Fear is great to play with. I don't mean that in a manipulative way, but it, that heightened tension, that heightened pressure, it makes people put their phones down, right? Playfulness, concern, interest, attraction, surprise, hope, excitement, gratitude, anger, outrage, unity, pride, sympathy, compassion. Those are my favorites to play with. So this is how this works. When I sit down with a client 
and we talk about whatever the thing is we're prepping for, whether it's TV or a presentation or a conversation, whatever. We talk about taking the audience on a journey. And for me, the map of the journey follows an emotional arc. I like to think of a talk, whether it's five minutes or 45 minutes or five hours, as having a beginning, middle, and end. In fact, I like to be dramatic, so I like to call it Act 1, Act 2, Act 3. I'm also obsessed with Ira Glass and This American Life, and that's how he does it, so I'm just going to pretend I'm Ira, and I always do. Anyway, (laughs) as you're thinking about your talk, plot it. Act one, act two, act three, or beginning, middle, and end, if you're not as dramatic as me. And then for each one of those acts, decide what is the dominant emotion you're going to be leveraging in that segment, right? And then once you've identified the emotion that you're working with at each stage, then you start laying track. And what I mean by that is you flesh out that emotional arc with facts data, and stories. That's how it's done. That's how I like to do it. Let me show you how this works. One time I worked with a statistician and a researcher, and we're going to call her Jane. And Jane was one of those people that was on speed dial for policymakers in government, right? In think tanks and NGOs and government folks, right? She was a data rock star. And there was just this one problem though. She was consistently getting feedback from her speaking opportunities. And the feedback was great data, important research, terrible delivery. She was on speed dial because conversationally, she knew how to convey a message briefly, succinctly, but get her on stage, ooh, things fell apart. And what would happen was she was very adept at showing chart after chart, number after number, and she assumed that the audience knew what to make of all the stuff she was throwing at them, right? The point of each piece of information seems so obvious to her that it should be that obvious to the audience. And so what she did was she used her time on stage to show as much data as possible. And what it did was it left the people in the room to draw their own conclusions, As you can imagine, the result was not great. The audiences were overwhelmed with information and frankly, underwhelmed by her ability to make any meaning of it. Here's the thing about audiences around the world. We're living in an age where information is cheap. Information is abundant. And facts and data are, of course, absolutely critical to communicating well and to getting point driven home. But it's wisdom and meaning that people value the most, right? It reminds me of this great line Tom Brokaw had. And he said something like, people don't want you to just tell them what happened. They want you to tell them what it means, right? So one of the biggest mistakes I see people make is they put facts and data and volume of information and content as the hero. And then the stories or the emotions, they're sort of an afterthought if they get around to it. Because it's a very defensive way to plan a talk. It's like, I'm going to cover my ass and show this audience that I'm really smart and I'm really busy and I've got a lot of credentials and I'm just going to give in everything so nobody could possibly question my credibility. That's like ego attack, right? That's little you. That's little me. Audiences want meaning, supported by data, bolstered by emotion. So back to my client, 
when I got the chance to work with her and we really started talking about the audiences she was presenting to, I think the toughest gig was people in government. I'm not going to make any snide remarks. I swear I'm not. I'm biting my tongue. But she was, she was resenting to government officials quite a lot or their staffers who were trying to brush up and get smart on an issue before presenting it to the elected officials. And the fact is those guys are bouncing between dozens and dozens of issues and topics every day. They can't possibly absorb, you know, a fire hose of data and information, right? When she got out of herself and got into that state of deep empathy for her audience, the question for her became, how can I help this audience become smarter about this issue by teeing up the most, maybe three, two to three most important findings and the questions they raise? Because she was very clear, I am a data person. I am a statistician. I'm a researcher. My job isn't to draw conclusions. My job is to tee up big questions. That was what she loved most. And audiences love that. Audiences love being given the opportunity to think through a question on their own, but they need us to frame those questions sometimes, right? And once she started approaching it from that perspective, she improved dramatically. And the research she was doing was really important social research, mission critical stuff. And she improved so much. And I got to imagine that as a country, we will benefit from her becoming more adept at presenting her findings, right? Bottom line, people's beleaguered brains need signal, not noise. So I want to ask you, as you're thinking about whatever talk you chose to work with last podcast, how will you give your data, your supporting facts, your emotional arc, the signal treatment and not the noise treatment? So What I want you to do, if you can, or do this later, is think about your opportunity that you've chosen to work with and write down your three acts, your beginning, middle, end. Assign an emotional state to each one and then flush it in with examples and data and story. In fact, let's talk about story for a minute. One of my favorite lines I've heard about storytelling came from a client I had many years ago. He came to me because somebody had said, you know what, can you work with this person? He just needs somebody to clean up his slides a little bit. Those are always famous last words. Like whenever somebody says that to me, I mentally roll my eyes and think, here we go. Because it's never just cleaning up the slides. It's usually a cataclysmic disaster of a presentation that makes you want to die, which is exactly what this was. And basically he was like slide 47 into 120 slide deck. And I stopped him and I said, you know, there is a lot going on in here. And as an audience member, what I'm craving are some stories to bring all of this data to life because it's a lot. You know what he said to me? He said, storytelling is for people who have no facts. (laughs) And I said, holy Moses, where did you hear that one from? And he said, you know, I heard it from a Catholic teaching nun back in about 1965. It really explained a lot. And you know, To be fair to him and Sister Christian, may she rest in peace, storytelling gets a bad rap, right? It's kind of been associated with charlatans and bullshit artists, right? So I get it. I get it. But here's the thing. Human beings are wired 
to remember story over facts in isolation. Unless a fact is so shocking, it's a story inside of itself, right? But human beings recall stories so much easier than they recall just random pieces of data, right? A story well told causes an audience to pay absolutely flawless attention. They forget about checking email. They forget about how many likes they got for that perfect sunset photo they doctored up on their Instagram feed, right? They're too busy feeling and wondering and listening with every fiber of their being. In other words, a good story puts people smack dab into the interest span. In fact, check this out. Princeton University neuroscientist Yuri Hansen studied the brain's response to stories by mapping brain activities. This is another one of those like stick a person in an MRI machine kind of deals, right? So what Hansen was trying to study was what happens functionally in the brains of both the listener and the storyteller in action. And not surprisingly, Hansen discovered that stories have a significant impact on the brain. In fact, he found that when the speaker tells a good story, the listener's brain activity mirrors that of the storyteller. Talk about influence. I mean, Jesus, that's like mind control, right? So what people always ask me is, great, fine. How do you tell a good story? And here's the thing I got to tell you, if you're expecting a clear-cut recipe for good storytelling, let me disappoint you. I mean, learning to tell a good story is like it reminds me of when I try and learn how to cook well at the at the side of my mother-in-law, Nina. Her skills in the kitchen are legendary. And even if she could write down her recipes and give me the basic mechanics and exact measurements of the magic she makes with tomatoes, garlic, basil, salt and pepper, and olive oil, it still wouldn't guarantee success. In Nina's words, you have to taste it and practice it and experiment and pour all your love into it. And when I say, yes, but how much salt do I put in? She looks at me and says enough salt. You put, you put enough salt in. <laughs> and while this is so frustrating to hear when you're learning to reproduce the flavor of Nina's cooking, inherent in this advice is you learn what works and what doesn't by doing it. And it's the same advice I give people about learning how to tell a good story. You learn by doing, and you learn by watching, and you learn by listening. So I always encourage people when you're really getting into the skill of storytelling. When you're trying to build that muscle, you got to study with the best. And we become good storytellers by listening to masters. But when I say listen to masters, I'm not talking about just passive story consumption, right? That's not going to transform your skills. To really learn the craft, listen with intent. Begin to notice how the story begins. What is the first sentence or description? I call it the jumping off point. What is that jumping off point. What do you notice about it? Is it high stakes? Is it funny? Is it shocking? Really good stories immediately drop you into an emotional state, immediately. Notice what emotions they tend to use and how it made you feel. How does the storyteller reveal the details of the characters or personalities involved? How's emotion used? Where's the action? How does a storyteller play with expectation, with suspense, right? Some of the greatest storytelling lessons I've ever had have come from radio. I, you know, I just, I love listening to NPR and I love listening to Audible. I love listening to podcasts. And This American Life, The Moth, Radiolab, S Town, Serial, The Robcast, if you're spiritually inclined, these folks are masters at storytelling. I mean, these guys live in the interest span. So, 
study it, mechanically study it, enjoy it, but also notice how they're doing it. But also, if that's not your bag, you're not like a listener like I am, you're more of a reader, notice how the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or the Washington Post, notice how they open their big stories. What's the first line? How do they grab your attention? How do they arrest it? How do they layer in detail only when they know they've got your attention? Notice, 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 notice. Also, side note, (laughs) I don't know about you, but the news makes me want to become a hermit in the backwoods of Maine because everything seems so terrible every single day. And so I went on this little like mind experiment recently to see if there was a way to still engage with the world and be a citizen of the world and listen and understand what's going on without wanting to throw myself off a bridge. And one of the techniques that I found worked and works, present tense, is to listen to the news through that lens of mechanics. So when I hear of loss, devastation, death, murder, genocide, or tomfoolery in Washington, D.C., I don't listen to it through the emotions. I notice how emotions are used to tell the story. I notice all the mechanics, right? So that's a sidebar. It's side benefit. You can consume news without wanting to kill yourself. You're welcome. (laughs) So once you get into this, you will notice that different people use storytelling in different ways. Sometimes a single story is the architecture of your entire talk. A great example of this is Lydia Yuknavich's TED Talk, The Beauty of Being a Misfit. God, what a gorgeous talk that is. Such a beautiful, beautiful performance. And she has one narrative that sails you through and everything hinges on that one story. But sometimes the driving force of a talk is an idea or a thesis. And the micro stories hang on that larger thesis. So you might have 10 stories, but one underlying thesis. A great example of that is Sir Ken Robinson's talk about do schools kill creativity? Fabulous example of that. Another one is your elusive creative genius from Liz Gilbert. Oh God, if you can ever get yourself to see Elizabeth Gilbert speak, you'll just have your mind blown, your face melted off by her amazingness. She's just a master. Or Brene Brown's is kind of a combination of the two, right? The Power of Vulnerabilities Act One is very much, um, you know, from the voice of a researcher. It's very sort of fact-driven. And then she moves into a personal narrative that sees you through Act Two and Act Three. It's brilliant. Use whatever approach supports the intention you've identified for your audience and lands you in the interest span. But here's the thing. You got to have a good inventory of data and facts and stories to choose from. And the best communicators always are more than just good storytellers. They're great story collectors. They know how to collect a juicy stat for use later. They know how to read with the intention of grabbing something interesting they'll use later, right? They're able to see their experiences, their observations, their challenges as potentially vibrant, useful stories for later use, right? So when the time comes to develop a presentation or a talk or whatever, they have this treasure trove of assets that they can pull from. Personally, I use a voice notes app. I think it's literally just called voice notes. And I, when I'm driving, I'll use Siri and I'll be like, Siri, launch voice notes. And then I hit record and I tell whatever story, stat, or thing I gathered that day that I'm like, ooh, I'm going to use that somewhere. I don't know where yet, but I'm going to use that. So get into that headspace of seeing everything as a potential asset for you. 
personally, if I'm not using my voice recorder, I have a good old fashioned journal that I keep. Like I have a story section of my journal and I plug things in there. But here's the thing. I want to say something about storytelling because there are limits to storytelling. I am not a fan of story for story's sake, right? When we flex our storytelling muscles because it's what we want, it becomes self-indulgent. Or when we do a story because we feel like we have to, because that's the thing to do now, that is a fear-based reason to tell a story, right? So one time, this was a hundred years ago, but I was presenting at a technology conference and the guy that went just before me decided that he was going to use the story of the three little pigs as a metaphor for what happens when you don't have the right security in place. And it was such a cliche and it was so lame. There was so much eye rolling in the room that there were like eyeballs rolling down the aisles, literally. Just kidding, not really literally. (laughs) But like you could even, like the presenter was even bored by it. He was grossed out by it too, right? So be mindful that you're not becoming a storyteller that's a cliched storyteller. In fact, I think you know, Ted gets some shade thrown its way for this. It's like, not everything is supposed to be a friggin' TED talk, right? Like, have you ever seen the TED parody? If you haven't seen it, go on YouTube and Google TED parody. It's classic. You know, the good news about TED is it's raised the bar for talks in general. It's reminded us the power of story and relevance and brevity and clarity. And it it's become the most important, powerful platform for ideas I think that's ever existed. Like, of course, we're going to look to TED Talks for inspiration. Of course, and we should. But beware, storytelling and preciousness around storytelling can very quickly become self-indulgent if it isn't tempered by that deep, abiding commitment to meeting an audience's needs, right? And some audiences, you know what they need? Brevity. They need clarity. They need you to get to the goddamn point, right? I mean, I've been in those meetings before. So go back to your opportunity that you're planning. Ask yourself, what's the beginning, middle, and end of your talk? What emotions do you want to play with in the beginning, middle, end, in act one, act two, act three? What stories can you layer in? What data? What facts? How do you layer that stuff in? Making sure all the while that you're meeting the needs of those audience, the needs that you identified in the first part of this process that we talked about during the goldfish problem, right? And then once you've done that, once you've mapped just bullets, right? It's just, we've just got bullets, act one, act two, act three, and each one has bullets in it with stories, emotion, facts, data, whatever. Now I want you to reflect on what you've got. Is this talk a single story that gets supported by facts and statistics and data? Or is it a thesis, an argument that you're making that's supported by stories and data? What's coming up for you? What does your intuition tell you? And my intuition, I don't know how yours talks to you about talks. I know when I'm on the right track, when I start to get excited, when I start to see the slides coming together, or when I start to feel the great sound bites that are coming together. That's how you know, right? And look at that. We're already (laughs) more dangerously over time, right? So what I want you to take from that section, right? This section has been called Mapping the Journey. What you've done is mapped an emotional journey. You figured out what's in your inventory of assets and you've got the beginnings of either a beautiful set of slides or a really rock star set of comments, right? 
So friends, next time when we pick up, we're going to talk about something called the SFD. And I'm not going to tell you what that stands for. You'll just have to come back. But in the meantime, have fun with this. Have fun with this. Start listening to great storytelling, not as a passive consumer, but as an active studier, as a student of great narratives. One more thing before we close here. I've heard from several people that there are moments during this podcast where you just kind of want to pull over and write something down that I've said or one of my guests have said or a book I recommend or mention, and that it's frustrating because if you're driving, you can't really write something down (laughs) or walking or running or any of those things. So what I thought I would do starting this week is I'll be offering a weekly recap of the podcast. And if you're interested in that, just go to my website, bronwyncommunications.com. That's B-R-O-N-W-Y-N communications.com and sign up for my newsletter. It'll be once a week. It'll include the main points I made or my guest made during the podcast and will include links to any other material we referenced during the conversation. It's just a little something to make your life a little easier. I hope that helps. Shine on you crazy diamonds. I'll talk to you next time.